0: When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
1: Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Since the death of Queen Elizabeth, the attention has understandably been on her life and all of the national pomp and ceremony that comes with her passing. But something else, highly significant, has just happened, which is that Prince Charles has now become king. And with that, a change that people, I don't think, have really realised. And that is that for the first time in living memory, we have a monarch who has strong opinions, is highly engaged in culture and politics, and you might say has a fully formed philosophy. Behind the scenes, for decades, Charles has been studying and developing his worldview. And he expressed it in a big 2010 book, which not that many people have read, called Harmony. And guess what? It's really interesting and quite radical. Our new king, paradoxically, is a bit of a countercultural revolutionary. We want to understand what he thinks, and to help us do that, there is no one better than the co-author of Harmony, uh, Ian Skelly, who joins us here in the studio. Welcome, Ian.
2: Thank you very much, Freddie. Yes, one of the co-authors.
1: Since 2010, you've also been writing speeches for The Now King. You've been involved with him on plans for other books, on international trips, making films with him. You've worked very closely with him. So it's fair to say you have a good understanding of his worldview.
2: Yes, I've I've got to know him. I've known him for 20 years or more.
1: The obvious question, which I'm sure you have been asked a lot, is what's he like? What is he like to work with? There's been these little uh, clips coming out of him having some impatient moments over things like pens malfunctioning. Yeah. What's the truth?
2: Well, I think... That's an aspect of him. Uh, he does at times, particularly when he's under pressure, and often he is under pressure. In fact, I've never known anybody so busy as him. That you would not believe how the schedule works day to day, seven days a week. So there are occasions when you know things boil over, and irascible. Yeah, I mean that that is part of the man. It's very similar to his father in that respect. You know, he's a very energetic. A uh, rather impatient person because he he wants to get things done. He doesn't really enjoy talking about things. He's a, he's a, a man of action, really. Uh, so when things go wrong or they go slowly, that that can cause you know the occasional explosion. But you know he's a human being, and, and I would say that that's what's so special about him. Really, he's he's very human. That's what I suppose also
1: to be stuck in the kind of air apparent job for 73 years for someone who wants to get things done and is a man of action would make you quite sort of impatient. Yes,
2: although I think by being the heir, he had the freedom to do all these things. Because once you become sovereign, you stop doing and you just become. And uh, so all the time that he was the Prince of Wales, he had, he had license and freedom to speak. Uh, he had freedom to do and he had freedom to use what he realized a long time ago he had as a capacity which is to enable and to bring people together, mm. to, to, to convene all sorts of different uh, viewpoints, so, to, to come to decisions and also to put ideas, I mean all of this book here is really a, a, an explanation of what he's taken philosophically and understood technically and put it into action.
1: Do you think he will now have to leave this behind, what we're about to outline, this, this, these strongly held beliefs about the world, and just sort of be neutral, or do you think inevitably some of this is going to come with him into his new role?
2: Well, I don't think you can stop believing in what you believe just because you assume a different role. Um, and you know, with 40 years' experience of digging deep into all of these subjects, getting to know a lot of very eminent people and experts in their fields, and putting these ideas into action. He's not just going to park all of that and close the door on it, because that's 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 him. That's his legacy. What will change is he won't be standing up and making the sorts of statements that you know he was once able to do. He he won't be he won't be writing another book, for example. He won't be he won't be standing up and 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 really calling to action in the way that he was able to do before. I don't think that necessarily means he'll stop uh, questioning in the right situations. Behind the scenes. Yes, I mean, if I was Prime Minister today or a member of uh, His Majesty's government, I'd be a bit worried about having audiences with him because he will ask questions and he's very, very informed. Well, Uh, on
1: the evidence of those clips of him being a bit snappy, maybe the Prime Minister will uh, get a bit of a telling off. (laughs)
2: Well, he's passionate. I mean, that's the point about him. And to go back to your other question, what you get from him is a very passionate person, incredibly funny, very able to put you at your ease. But underneath it all, what I rather admire, actually, there is an extremely serious person there who thinks deeply and has really endeavoured to understand the deep causes of many of the issues that we're all facing today.
1: So let's get into that thinking, because I suppose his reputation would be one of two things, either a sort of slightly kind of soft left climate kind of person who would probably be slightly irritating to people on the right of the spectrum, or he's this sort of ultra traditionalist kind of fogey ish person who is irritating to people on the left of the spectrum. Actually, I found reading this, neither of those is quite true. He's, he's quite radical, actually, it's almost a bit edgy, some of the, oh, yeah. the, the thinking. So, so let's outline it. You talked about this, at the start, this sort of divorce or this breach, um, which happened over the past 300 years, he outlines that in this book, which is basically that the Enlightenment sort of took us away from fundamental truths at the moment. Anyone who speaks against the Enlightenment is considered, you know, some a, a strange kind of retrograde mystic or something. What's the truth, and what does Charles think about that big sweep of history?
2: Well, he's not anti-science. First off, uh, he and he's a progressive. Uh, and I think the confusion about where he comes from, whether he's a progressive or he's an old fogey, comes from the fact that he really believes in traditional ways. Of doing things and thinking, because um, he sees tradition as a, as as a, an investment in the future, not something to hark back to. Um, because a lot of the traditional approaches uh, have a lot of value, and what he worries about, and certainly when we were putting this book together, is that we kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, so you know all this wonderful progress that we've got, he doesn't deny, that's marvellous. But, uh, what what has it made us, how has it made us look at the world? How has it made us look at our relationship with the natural world? Because it's not a soft thing to be concerned about the environment. Um, We call it nature, but what, what we're really talking about there are systems that ensure our survival and they're very very complex systems uh, and if you start to break them down and uh, exploit them extensively then the whole system breaks down. I mean the reason we called it harmony is very important, that book, because it comes from the ancient Greek principle uh, which I think, I think the word is armonia, which is, as far as I understand it meant to join things up well, mm. so uh, you know a, a building that was harmonic. Or a piece of Bach's music that was perfectly harmonious was, was well made up. His
1: thinking then is actually that the ancients, all the way, some of it goes back to ancient Egyptians, Greeks, and certainly medieval thinkers, knew more than we do in some way about those harmonious systems. And it's expressed in their architecture and even in their kind of understanding of. The relationship between the soul and the body, and those kinds of things. And somehow, in that kind of scientific revolution where we began to see the world as a machine, we've sort of dropped a lot of truth and a lot of wisdom which he wants to rediscover. Is that, yes, am I getting I mean, close to it?
2: Yes, I think you're right there. I think I mean, if you're talking philosophically, there is a sort of philosophical idea at the heart of all of his thinking, which uh, I mean, it was very interesting because we we spent quite a bit of time looking into why, why people three hundred years ago felt more comfortable than they did, in treating nature in a different kind of way. Because, I mean, the history of Christianity is a long one, and therefore history has somewhat confused uh, it. If you go back to the you know the writings of the Desert Fathers, or you go back to the the, the early Christian principles, what you find there is a, a, a kind of universal philosophy really, which you find underpins Islam, it underpins uh, Judaism, it underpins uh, Hinduism. The Vedas are full of it. It's this um, and indeed, for that matter, the, 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 the philosophies, if you like, of the of the primary peoples of the world who have not lost this sense of the sacred, whether it be the aboriginal, Uh, uh, nations or the the first nations of Canada you you, you talk to those people they they speak in exactly the same way as once upon a time they did in Western Europe and uh, what was very interesting was to come across the curious actually theological shift that happened in about the 12th century before then at the time of someone like Aquinas you know th- theology saw saw divinity as innate in everything um, the natural world was an expression of divinity and uh, and and therefore we were too and some of that survives I mean I was reading the other day uh, Dylan Thomas's poem about what is it he calls about that talks about the 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 force through the green fuse that drives the flower It's the same idea of this animating principle at the heart of life. What happened in about the 13th century was there was this theological shift in in Western Christianity which started to see uh, God as separate from creation, something that was out there with a will, and we were the instruments of that will. And that profound philosophical shift is certainly interesting. Because what you then get is uh, a, 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 a sort of freedom that humanity felt, it seems to me, to, to be as disconnected from creation as the divine. God so, was out there, that nature was something that was created, and that everything was separate.
1: So according to this narrative, <coughs> then, I, I'm wrong to say that it's all about the Enlightenment and the past 300 this comes years, long the, before the, that. the initial breach yeah. Is in the sort of early medieval period.
2: Yeah, we get this sort of, for all sorts of complex theological reasons. I'm not a theologian, nor am I a philosopher, but you know, I just found it interesting that this shift did definitely occur. And uh, what it then did was move us away from what you still find, for example, in Islam, the, the, the principle of taweed, which is essentially unity. There's no separation between heaven and earth. Uh, 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 the, the, the dome of a mosque is symbolic of the, of the earthing of heaven. Everything is integrated. And going back to the title of the book, the, the reason we, he had to fight for that book to be called Harmony is because he wanted to get across the fact that the natural systems on which we depend, nature, is harmonic. It's a profoundly integrated, interconnected system and that it's not just a mechanical uh, system, there is an intelligibility to it too, which if you go right back to the Stoics they talked about becoming in tune with that inner intelligibility, uh, that sense of the sacred.
1: So this becomes, I mean it might sound unbelievably esoteric or theoretical or academic, but actually it's becoming quite a pressing sort of real live political question, all of this. In recent years, more than ever, there's been a sort of a movement against a kind of purely scientific uh, understanding of the world. And, and, you know, we've done quite a lot over the pandemic period. And that has certainly sort of made that division more visible. I I just want to read a quote from uh, the book, which I think will feel quite relevant to this. Uh, The now King writes, In one sense, I have myself been a victim of this tendency to exaggerate. I've found that if you have the temerity to question conventional wisdom in science, then you end up being labelled as anti-science, when in fact I have never been so. What I'm happy to be considered anti is the kind of science that fails to see the whole picture. Science has assumed such authority that its ruling on a particular question can mean vast profits for the companies who fund the science and therein lies a problem that is all too obvious this could have been written last year this year it it does sound a bit edgy for a, for a king to say this how would you kind of explain that is he he's not anti-science no but he would he would side with people i suppose who reject the kind of total authority of science over all aspects of our lives
2: well yes I think what he was trying to get out there is that our, our discourse has become dominated by a rational language the la- the rational language of uh, reductive science which is great for reductive science but you know if reductive science starts to uh, engage in questions of philosophy and spiritual matters. That's not a language that can cope with those discourses Um, and the the, the language of philosophy, the language of um, uh, of spiritual uh, discourse has been sidelined. Um, That's really what he's saying there, that we need to bring those languages back in, those, those attitudes towards you know what we are. I mean, I think it's very interesting that uh, when we were writing this book, no one had heard of all of this wonderful um, uh, research that's gone into how trees operate. We now know, through science, that uh, trees communicate with each other. Uh, they, they actually look after each other in a, in a kind of way. You know, they they do protect their young. They send out signals of warning when when forests are under attack. We know all this now because of the way in which trees communicate. Now that's not to say that trees have feelings like us or have a, an intelligence like us but there is an intelligibility there at work in the natural world and you see it of course in lots of different uh, mammals but you also see it in the organisms within the soil. Um, so you know if science has kind of come around to this notion of intelligibility but the problem is it still doesn't quite acknowledge that the that life is conscious. Hmm.
1: If you go right well, we had, back, we had Merlin Sheldrake on this show talking about his fungi on book, and yeah. that's, that's that it's is all related, is It's all similar. Related,
2: yes, and and you know and, and what that really tells me is that, that there there is consciousness. I mean, if you go right back to the you know the the Platonists, Plato and the the, the neo Plotinus, for example. Uh, an Alexandrian philosopher, he's very clear about which comes first. Consciousness comes first, and out of that arises matter, which sounds a really bonkers way of looking at it from our perspective, but that's because we've lost that philosophical language. We're looking at the world from, from the, you know, reductive scientific approach. Mm. But,
1: uh, so this sort of cliché of, of Prince Charles as he then was talking to plants, is actually a little bit fair, in that he he, he does view the natural world as being intelligent.
2: <laughs> well, let me just put that right. First of all, I mean, that was a, a that was a comical question at the end of a long interview. Um, I'm a gardener, I talk to my plants. I usually swear at them for dying. But, uh, so yeah, I think as a gardener, he probably does talk to his plants. What I think is interesting about that particular interview, if you look back at what was also going on then, what he was saying there, very seriously was that we should be planting more trees, not chopping them down. Thirty years ago, he was saying this. Uh, what are we saying now? You know, it's the, it's the solution to so many of our problems. We plant more trees because they restore soils, they capture carbon, uh, they encourage biodiversity. But we're still chopping them down, you know, through millions of acres. So uh, yeah. Well, that's, the, that's he, the practical talking, bit. But when the, he was talking about talking to plants, he wasn't expressing some deep philosophical uh, point at that moment. But uh,
1: although I'm sort of trying to defend that principle, <laughs> yes. uh, but given oh, what you've said, plants, right, you know, yeah. Yeah, So, so there's a, there's a practical um, point, and some of the um, contents of this book is about ecosystems and climate and how to have a more kind of sustainable agriculture and those kind of more practical things. But as you've described, behind it is a is a philosophy. Um Which does sort of imbue uh the material world and and the the living world outside humans with intelligence, and that I guess is easy to parody and easy to kind of dismiss if you 're a sort of secular rationalist fundamentalist yeah. um you know you you say he 's a kook or he 's a hippie or you know he 's talking to plants whilst m- maybe actually the view he represents is more commonly found among people than people realize.
2: Yes, I mean, what he's arguing for is that we should have a reverence for the earth, just as all of the primary peoples have a reverence for the earth, because we depend upon it. And the the way we have gone, this crisis in our perception, which sees the earth as this massive resource to mine and to exploit and to manipulate and do with what we will, has caused unbelievable problems. But if you have a reverence for the Earth, you're not likely to start pouring chemicals all over it and destroying the very soil that we need to grow our food, for example. Uh, If you have a reverence for the Earth, you're not likely to just dump loads of plastics in the sea and destroy all of life in the oceans, which, by the way, will have an impact on our lives. Um, You know, if you talk to any of the primary peoples of the world, and I've spent quite a bit of time in parts of Canada travelling with uh, First Nations people, and look as if they come out of the 8th century or something they're very serious people who are very concerned about what we're doing to the earth and from their perspective their perspective it's incredibly wrong because it it offends their very view of life which is an integral view of life that we i mean one of the points in that but one of the best lines in that book if i may say is is where we stress the fact that we shouldn't see ourselves as being even a part of nature. You know, we've come to see ourselves as apart from nature, but it's, it's, it's dangerous just to think we should be a part of nature, because that still implies it's made up of parts. We are nature. And until we shift our thinking that far, uh, we're going to carry on doing huge amounts of harm ultimately to ourselves. That's what he's arguing there. It's, it's 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 rooted in this philosophical outlook, which he believes was the right philosophical outlook that we've lost touch with. He doesn't want to become a, you know, all he doesn't want all of us to become monks in, in, in monasteries, you know, praying to the earth. We've just gotta have a reverence for it.
1: In the past few years, these topics have become especially salient because partly because of the pandemic. Um, and how we responded to that has become a you know, controversial topic, because people who sort of tend to agree with King Charles on these kind of points are a little bit anxious that too much intervention in things like um, viruses and diseases, whether it's by lockdowns and vaccines and that kind of thing, might be putting out of kilter these quite complex natural ways of staying healthy. Do you have a view on that, and do you know what King Charles's view was on that over the past few years?
2: I don't. I don't know what his view was on the pandemic. Um, I know he's long been concerned about the way we use uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, you know the whole idea of using um, antibiotics to not so much cure animals, but to pump them full of them so that they they don't get diseased causes untold problems, you know, pigs and cattle and so on. So the the overuse of of chemicals and pharmaceuticals has always worried him. Um, He's well known for being very concerned about the idea of genetically modifying crops because you know we're playing with life there, Uh, we're playing with grass which is the thing that feeds us and you know if things go wrong that's it. so I think, uh, yeah, he, uh, he's very concerned about the overuse of of drugs and chemicals um, in the production of food as much as anything else. Uh, you know. So
1: he he prefers to sort of rely on natural systems where possible. Is that is that a yes? I mean, of... he
2: thinks we we, we 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 could do more, and because he's a man of action, not a man of you know just windbagging you know he attempted to try and put these ideas into practice so for example he he converted part of home farm at uh, Highgrove into an organic farm against the wishes by the way of the Duchy of Cornwall who thought he was mad to do so now if you drive across that part of Gloucestershire practically every farm is organic and uh, he gave a massive speech which I um, helped with a great deal at the time of his first son's wedding Uh, in, in Washington he gave it just a few days after the wedding which um, made a massive impact on thinking across America. Uh, and uh, you see there that the, the organic movement has, has spread because of this fear of over, over the overuse of chemicals, the overuse of um, mm. growth hormones and so on, which in the short term produces a wonderful profit for everybody. And seems a very efficient way of doing it, but n- nature isn't isn't um, it's efficient, but it's in a in a complex way. Mm-hmm. And if you start to 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 destroy the complexity and simplify everything, you you get problems. And yes. that's one of the main arguments of this book that we've you know we've 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 entered this machine age. Uh, we, we no longer have a circular sense of economy; it's very much straight line.
1: Here's what's really interesting to me about this: first of all, it's neither of the left nor the right; it's not on that political spectrum. Um, you know, part of it—it it sounds sort of anti-capitalist, frankly. It sounds very sceptical of big corporations, drug companies, big big farming. Um, which would be quite upsetting to a lot of people on the kind of right of the spectrum. Um, but then it does sound ultra traditional in in some ways, which would be might sound strange to people on the left. It feels to me like there is actually a bit of a movement going on and which is why his accession to the throne at this particular time might be more significant because there are people who are talking a bit like King Charles has been talking. For some decades let me read a little paragraph from the book about what his vision of the future is Uh, and it draws together some of these threads his vision is of a future where food production and its distribution will have to all happen more locally to each other and be less dependent certainly on aircraft where the car will become much more subordinated to the needs of the pedestrian where our economy will have to operate on a far less generous supply of raw materials and natural resources, and where the character of our built environments once more reflects the harmonious universal principles of which we are an integral part. I mean, you could go through that and say that it's quite prophetic, almost. I mean, I don't want to overdo it, but a future where food production and its distribution will have have to happen more locally. There's a lot of talk about that at the Mm. moment. We've literally seen international supply chains break and so there's a bit of a panic about that relying on less energy uh, and less natural resources well the winter we have coming is one where the whole of europe is going to have to do just that and the character of our built environment that's referring to buildings again there's a movement that is really gaining quite a lot of traction around different types of building away from these kind of skyscrapers and towards a more human scale, walkable streets, and all the rest of it.
2: But what you've just described there are all the ideas he was banging on about 30 years ago. Um, And underpinning all of that, to just go back to your point about capitalism, his argument is not so much anti-capitalist as pointing out that our capitalism depends upon nature's capital. And what we have increasingly done over the past 50 or so years, you could go back even further, is we've eroded that capital in the bank. It's unsustainable. And if you want capitalism, you need to ensure that nature's capital is healthy and sustained. That's the central premise of this. That's, you know, so don't, don't read it as being anti-capitalist. Mm. It's pro-nature's capital, which underpins everything else. Um, but yes, I mean, all of those ideas there, you can trace back to things that he was talking about 30 years ago. I mean, he gets a lot of stick for Poundbury, this um, extension to This Dorchester. is a village that he yeah.
1: essentially built in in yeah. more traditional style. Yes, so
2: the history of that, very briefly, is that Dorchester is a city in, um, in Dorset. It had to expand. Part of the local plan was that it was going to expand, and it was in- intending to expand onto land owned by the duchy. And for once, uh, the then Prince of Wales argued, don't build as you've always built before, which is to say, you know, these satellite housing estates using lots of land, where the school is separate from the houses, where the supermarket's you know, two miles down the road, down a a, a dual carriageway, and so on and so forth. I want to see if it's possible to build in a much more integrated way, where people can have a car but but don't need it all the time, because they can walk everywhere so creating these little walkable towns which is the traditional way that towns always developed if you fly over north london it's made up of lots of different villages that's how it it's like a honeycomb um,
1: Are you fair to say Poundbury a mixed success at this point? There's been some other new
2: developments that he's well, done that was maybe were more successful. Yes, that was the first one, and you learn by your mistakes. Uh, he got slated because they all look very pretty, but actually what he was saying was, I also want to see a, an extension to Dorchester that looks like Dorchester. If you go up to Scotland, to Cumnock, just outside, um, near to Dumfries House, where he has a big operation there, the houses there that they built look like the rest of Cumnock or if you get into Swansea they look like Welsh houses or in Cornwall so it's about creating a sense of place using local resources local materials and creating local communities that are dependent upon local craftspeople and indeed as he was pointing out there producing food more locally to cut down on the the cost of transportation which of course is absolutely massive
1: what's so interesting is that He was completely pilloried for this for for decades by the architectural establishment, by fashionable, you might call it metropolitan opinion. And somehow it takes someone with such a position as that not to be afraid of the enormous influence of current received wisdom. Mm. So it's a very interesting kind of revolutionary you have in the new king in that, purely by the accident of his position, he's sort of buttressed enough to retain his uh, views, no matter if he's pilloried for them. There's one um, more quote I want to read from the book, which I think was it's really quite striking about that sense of being in opposition to you know, the cathedral of received opinion. I remember the 1960s only too well, he writes, and even as a teenager, I felt deeply disturbed by what seemed to have become a dangerously short sighted approach. I could not help feeling that in whichever field these changes were taking hold with industrialized techniques replacing traditional practices, something very precious was being lost. You've got the sense of a kind of teenage revolutionary already in the 1960s, just as everyone was so excited about the progress, the new style of building modernism, you know, new liberal values and everything else. You've got a young Prince Charles sitting there in his, literally, castle, thinking, no, 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 this is all the wrong way. Mm. And he sort of stubbornly refused to go along with it all of those decades, and now it's almost come back into fashion.
2: Yes, I mean, when I first got to know him, I was... When I really got to know him and saw how he operated, you know, behind the scenes, and, to be honest, also amongst his own family, I realised just... um, how remarkable he was, really, and he has extraordinary, th- the guts he, it took to, to stick his head above the parapet, not first of all publicly, but you know, behind the scenes. The pillaring he received from you know, those closest to him must have been tough. But to then decide that he was going to actually stand up and say, should we be doing things this way in terms of architecture, in terms of the way we're growing our food, and so on and so forth, Uh, I can only admire Uh, and it comes from a very deep place that's the other thing and going back to a point I made earlier who is a profoundly serious person now you know had he not been born into this position I dare say he would still be that person and goodness knows what he'd be doing today but he is in this position and uh, he uh, has almost um, at times railed against the established view because he feels so strongly that we need to just Think again, and and frankly, just join the dots up. That's all he's really been arguing all of this time. But no, I, I admire him immensely for for standing standing his ground. And uh, you know, pilloried twenty years ago, now he's seen as having been right. I can remember a good fifteen years ago helping him put a big speech together where he wanted to talk about plastics in the sea. Nobody was talking about plastics in the sea. Everyone thought this was another you know moment from Planet Charles. Um, then we get the big issue, and of course it's now bigger because no one took any notice. Only earlier this year he gave a, a video address to the Farnborough Air Show. Uh, NASA got very interested in it because he was, he's very concerned about what we're going to do on the moon when we get back there. We start m- mining the moon. And should there not be some sort of international agreement over how we do that, or we're going to end up with another Wild West up there, destroying another environment. Now. You might think that's from Planet Charles. Mm. let's see what the feeling is in 20 years time about that one. Uh, I could go into all sorts Mm. of different uh, examples where he's way ahead of the game. I mean, we've got one big thing coming down the track that no one's talking about at the moment, which is the shortage of phosphorus, which you need to grow plants. That's going to run out if we're not careful.
1: This is for fertilizers. Fertilizers, Mm. yes.
2: Curiously, human sewage could be the solution. And he's been going on about that for 20 years, but no one's been taking any notice. It's all... I'm you know,
1: not going to profess having a strong view on whether we should use <laughs> human sewage, but... He does. It, it might shortly happen. <laughs> um, is this how monarchy should be working, do you think? Because maybe there's an argument to say that in the, in the balance, you know, the prince, or now king, is talking about systems and delicate balances... In the balance of a constitutional monarchy, the role of the monarch, insofar as they have one, is surely to act as a break on sort of overexcitable, overly new, fashionable ideas that people who are currently in power get seized by. And maybe that's what he's doing. So this, this slightly kind of grumpy man we're now becoming familiar with, who's gets crossed when his pen doesn't work and so on is sort of now stepping up into his appropriate role which is to kind of push back on people getting carried away with the new thing or the overly modern sort of view of the world and maybe that's maybe that's appropriate maybe we want him to be an activist behind the scenes I mean what do you think about that
2: well, I think the role of the monarch, uh, although we think it's set in stone because most of us have only been familiar with one f- person in that role, if you go back beyond uh, Queen Elizabeth II, you do find other monarchs who are engaged in issues and are concerned and show their concern, uh, George V, very good example of that in his reign of bringing people together and you know. Necessarily, not necessarily always pleasing the government of the day by asking certain questions. Um, We know what Queen Victoria's views were on a lot of things, and you can go right back. So, um, you know, he will make this role his own. He knows the difference and has gone on record as saying that he knows the difference. When he was 70, you know, he spoke to the BBC and said, I'm not stupid. I know the difference between what I'm now and what I will become and he's now become it and the very first thing he said in that address to the nation was I'm drawing a line under what I was I now assume this role you can expect me to be quiet about these things wow. but that doesn't mean to say that he's not concerned and as I said earlier uh, you know, he will and it's his constitutional role uh, to uh, ask questions and to maybe uh, express caution sometimes. Um, he's not coming to this role ignorant of, you know, the way the world works, and I don't think that's a bad thing. Really, we have a person who is uh, as qualified as he could be to to take on this role. He's he's known he's going to be doing it since he was five. Uh, he's, um, you know spent a lot of time thinking about it and I always think it's interesting that no one questions when a barrister becomes a judge you know, barristers, what what do barristers do, they argue they argue from a particular point of view to the exclusion of any other point of view Um, and then a barrister eventually becomes a judge and no one questions that then this judge takes an objective view. I don't know many people who are barristers who knew they were going to become a judge when they were five so you know, they've had less time to prepare for that shift than he's had to prepare for that shift, and you will see him making that shift. He you know he he can take on this role, and he won't be he won't be, you know, writing books. He won't be being an activist, if you like, is the way he sometimes um, uh, uh, described. Uh, he won't even be a mobilizer anymore. I don't think, in the way that he has been, he he will be someone who will encourage and uh you know take a wise view
1: ian skelly someone who's worked very closely with prince charles now king charles co-wrote this book with him thanks for telling us a little bit more about what he thinks thank you freddie that was ian skelly who co-wrote this book harmony with the then prince of wales prince charles who is now king of the united kingdom the paradox is that here you've got someone who really could not be more establishment. He's literally the king. He lives in Buckingham Palace, or will do, and he meets world leaders every day. He will probably turn up at the World Economic Forum and make a speech next year, who knows? In some senses, he's the kind of pinnacle of the current establishment. And yet there's this other thing going on, which is that his thinking is really quite radical he's kind of a radical traditionalist. He rejects a lot of the currents of modernity that have happened since the 1960s. And that leaves us with this quite precarious, and I suspect quite consequential situation, which is that those people who are most anti-establishment, most sceptical about everything from Vaccines through to farming, through to big business, through to the whole systems by which the world is governed, kind of have a champion in the shape of King Charles. How that is going to play out, we don't know. And as Ian said in his new role, he really, his hands are tied and he doesn't have the ability to speak out publicly. But I suspect that tension is going to turn out to be really quite interesting now in years to come. We'll be watching very closely how it all plays out. Thanks for tuning in. This was Unheard.
3: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more.